0: So here we are hiking up the hill at Sibu Said. And it's a big hill. <laughs> I'm a little winded. You know, when I uh, when I first started learning about the revolution, I thought that <laughs> I thought that, you know, because like transliteration in Arabic is different from person to person. I thought the revolution started here. Really? (laughs) Sidi Bou Said, Sidi Bou Zid. I mean, I'd never been here.
1: For sure. I mean, this is definitely not a place where revolutions start, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What, behind the extremely high garden walls of the most tony suburb of Tunis?
1: I mean, yeah. No, I mean, this is not... Where people living on the uh, economic edge are living.
0: <laughs> They're just living on the absolute edge of a beautiful hill that overlooks the Mediterranean. Sidi Bou Said and Sidi Bouzid sound similar, but they couldn't be more different. If you close your eyes and conjure an image of a quintessential whitewashed town on the sea, you wouldn't be far off from what Sidi Bou Said looks like. Every house is painted this bright, bleached white, with shutters and trim in the kind of cerulean blue that looks like you cut a swatch straight from the sky. The garden walls around the houses almost touch, so the little narrow streets feel like slot canyons in places. You know, one of the things that surprises me most is the kinds of cars that are parked in these tiny cobblestone alleys. It's not what you'd think in a place where, like, You have to fold your mirrors in to get down the street. Let's see, there's an Audi, a couple VWs, a Mini, a Beamer, a Porsche. I didn't even know you could get Porsches in uh, Tunisia. And while the alleys and narrow lanes are charming, there's really only one reason people move to Sidi Bou Saïd. Man, that view. It just never gets old. You know, it's incredible from the foot of the hill, you can't really see what's beyond Sidi Busaid. You just see the town nestled up into this hill, and then as you walk up, all of a sudden you come to the crest and you look out on this incredible view straight out across the Mediterranean. I think the house must have been somewhere around here. We came to Sidi Busaid in search of a house. Or rather, a place where a house used to be. It belonged to the daughter and son-in-law of Tunisia's dictator, President El Abidine Ben Ali. It was perched high up on the hill on a prime lot with stunning sea views. Rumors about the house, or really the mansion, circulated freely in the village. Residents had seen the trucks with slabs of Carrara marble winding down the narrow streets, and dozens of craftsmen streamed in and out of the grounds every day. And while the village kept a close and curious eye on the interlopers as the mansion was being built, their new next-door neighbor had already made their acquaintance.
2: There was one time when I did have an opportunity to have a dinner with Ben Ali's daughter, Nasreen, in Saker El Matre. They had a home in Hamamet that was quite beautiful, had an infinity pool, had a tiger in a cage, quite remarkable, um, my sense was that they had a profound sense of how wealthy and powerful they were. They issued orders to staff. They served an opulent, amazing multi-course dinner, and it was very much a, an indication what of just how much they had. And you know, when you sort of think about it in the context of Tunisians, some of whom were struggling day to day for food or for other things, it, it uh, was just a story of huge excess.
0: To really understand the revolution, you've got to know how the other half of the equation lived. I say the other half, but really, it was just the other .01%. As I'm sure you can imagine, getting folks who were cozy with an ousted dictator to sit down and speak on the record was nearly impossible. Luckily we did have the chance to interview someone who had a unique inside view of the upper crust of Tunisia in the late 2000s, pet tigers and all.
2: I'm Bob Godek. I was the U.S. ambassador to Tunisia from 2006 to 2009.
0: Ambassador Godek's story, the dinner party where Ben Ali's daughter had berries flown in that afternoon from Saint-Tropez for their dessert, well, it's bonkers. But it's just one of a million stories about the corruption that plagued Tunisia straight to the core.
2: Every Tunisian had a story, and often more than one story, about corruption in Tunisia. I can't say with certainty which of the stories were true and which were not. But I think a couple of things were certain. One, Ben Ali and the Trabelsi's had a lot of money. They were getting all of this stuff that they were buying somewhere. And second, there were so many stories... And there was so much evidence that there's no doubt that some of the stories were true. And probably many, maybe even most of the stories were true.
0: Everyone had a story about the corruption, the greed, the brokenness of things in Tunisia. From your local gas station clerk or school teacher to the wealthy family whose land was seized so that Sakhar al-Matri could build that mansion on the hill in Sidi Bou Saïd. And today... We're going to hear the story of Ben Ali and Leila Trabelsi, a military officer and a hairdresser, who built their political empire and their extravagant lives on that broken system. From the Agora Podcast Network, this is Revolution 1. Today's episode, Ben Ali.
2: My first impressions when I arrived in Tunisia was that it was a country that had a lot to be proud of. Uh, Not a large country, not a lot of resources, but with a culture and a way of life that was just truly, truly remarkable. And the country had a lot going for it. Um, There was a high education level. The treatment of women, um, particularly in that part of the world was, was really good. High home ownership, very high home ownership. Maybe about 80% of people owned their own homes. High per capita income. So GDP per capita, around three or four
1: thousand dollars. So it made it a lower middle income country. Tunisia had a lot going for it. And there is one man who is usually credited for these points of Tunisian pride Habib Bourguiba. In 1956, Bourguiba led Tunisia to independence from France and became the founding father of the country. Then, he installed himself as president, and would later declare himself president for life. Unlike some of the other autocrats who emerged during decolonization, Bourguiba styled himself as a liberal, secular, western-leaning leader. He was deeply invested in shaping a modern economy, improving education and healthcare, enacting progressive laws that mimicked, and sometimes even outpaced, those emerging in post-war Europe.
0: Right, the ambassador mentioned especially the treatment of women. You know, I was surprised to learn that Tunisia made access to both birth control and abortion legal before the US did.
1: Yeah, plus, they were the first country in the Arab world to abolish polygamy, and they gave women the right to divorce. I mean, you weren't the only one who was surprised by Bergiba's progressive views. I found this amazing newsreel from the BBC in 1966, shot
3: in a nightclub in Tunis. <laughs> For women who 10 years ago had no rights, were contracted to a marriage by their parents, covered their faces when they left the house, these Tunisians are not doing at all badly. This is, one imagines, as emancipated as any girl can get. These swinging Tunisian dolly birds represent one of the most remarkable social transformations of present times.
0: Um, I love that. I mean, sign me up to be a swinging Tunisian dolly bird. <laughs> it sounds great, right?
1: For a lot of people, it was, especially for the sort of elite European class of Tunisians living in the capital. But it wasn't great for everyone, particularly not if you were religious or rural or more conservative or a leftist. Bourguiba was dedicated to his vision of a westernized Tunisia, but he wasn't interested in a democracy or a pluralized society. And so he actively repressed anyone whose views differed from his. You know, we could do an entire podcast series just on Bourguiba but we're actually here to talk about a successor. And by the 1980s, it was clear Borgiba needed one. He was in his 80s, and his mental and physical health were both suspect. He'd begun making objectively bad decisions, without the support of any of his aides, and some of them were big enough to throw the entire country into turmoil. Borgiba's weakness in his old age, it left this opening for people looking for power and influence. And there is one man who, little by little over the decades, had earned the trust of Borgiba and was waiting in the wings to take over. And that man was Zinal Abedin Ben Ali. He'd risen from relatively normal,
2: middle-class sorts of beginnings. He'd been the Minister of Interior and then later the Prime Minister by kind of the mid-1980s. And he had, bit by bit, accumulated power and acquired the confidence of Bourguiba. And when doctors declared Bourguiba incompetent
1: mentally, Ben Ali essentially seized power and he, he took over. We're going to stop here for just a second because the ambassador is being very diplomatic about Bourguiba's departure. And in a way, downplaying Ben Ali's part in the whole charade. No one could deny that Bourguiba's mental faculties declined precipitously as he aged. And that his whims were becoming more and more unpredictable. And at times, brutal. Ben Ali, a career military officer actually landed on Bourguiba's radar after helping put down a nationwide strike in the late 70s. He had the internal security forces he controlled shoot protesters on Bourguiba's orders. 200 people died. But in 1987, on Bourguiba's 84th birthday, a breakaway group of far-right Islamist political activists detonated a bomb in his hometown, and Bourguiba lost it. Months earlier, he had arrested the leadership of the nonviolent Islamic Tendency Movement. Who were a more moderate religious opposition group, on trumped-up charges. They were still sitting in jail when the bombing happened, but Brigitte decided they would be the Fall Guys and ordered them executed. Ben Ali, who by this time had risen to become the Prime Minister, saw his chance. There is no way summary execution of dozens of political prisoners would be anything but destabilizing and wildly unpopular. He had to move quickly. On the night of November 6th, he met with a half dozen doctors, and then moved to the presidential palace with a group of military men. As soon as they'd rolled past the armored gates, his men cut off communication lines to the palace and blocked the exits. Nothing was getting in or out. The doctors had declared Borgiba mentally incompetent to serve as president. There was a provision in the Constitution, a bit like our 25th Amendment, that enabled the president to be removed from power if he was not physically or mentally able to do the job. It also stated that if that were the case, the prime minister assumed the presidency. By the next morning, Habib Bourguiba was in a motorcade, staring blankly out the window as he drove past the gates of the presidential palace for the last time. It was Ben Ali's country now.
0: Second-generation dictators often lack the finesse and charisma of their forebearers, and Ben Ali was no exception. Bourguiba may have been an autocrat, but he had a vision for the future of Tunisia— Ben Ali just had a vision for his own future, one full of influence, money, and above all else, unbridled power. Ben Ali didn't swoop in to save those Islamist political prisoners from execution as some sort of humanitarian act. It was just a convenient moment to make a raw power grab. In fact, Ben Ali hated the Islamist opposition as much as Borgiba did, and would make it his personal mission to crush them for the next decade. You know, the regime didn't just torture the prisoners.
4: They tortured their families, too, in a way. I was really young, like five years old. And I didn't understand why my father wasn't with us, why he was away. My mom tried. She tried to explain gently so she didn't scare me. But I didn't understand what the word prison meant. For a long time, I would go looking for him. I'd go into every room in the house and look and look, but I'd never find him. Mm. I don't have um, many memories of my childhood, but that one is so clear. Looking and looking and not finding him and
0: wondering where he was. This is Amal Swayed. She grew up in the south of the country, in Gabes. Her family were devout Muslims, and her father was involved in the mainstream Islamist political party that same one those prisoners Borgiba wanted to execute belonged to. After Ben Ali came to power, they renamed themselves Anadha, or Renaissance. You know, the term Islamist is often used as a sort of soft synonym for terrorist, even though they aren't the same thing. And terrorist definitely doesn't describe Anadha. These guys weren't hiding in caves and amassing weapons to try to establish a caliphate or anything even close to that. They were holding political rallies and writing persuasive pamphlets, You know, organizing their communities around the issues they cared about. They just didn't want Tunisia to become a secular European state, and instead hoped it would hold on to its Arab-Muslim roots. There's not an exact parallel with U.S. politics, but these guys were more of, like, evangelical Republicans than proud boys. For the most part, they were well-educated young men from conservative families in the interior, and they didn't have the social cachet to break in with the francophone elite. Oftentimes, that was because they were devout Muslims, and the elite were all secular. They saw politics, not violence, as a way to gain legitimacy for their ideas. Ben Ali saw it another way. Any opposition was an enemy of the state. Anadha just happened to be the biggest and most well-organized. So he set to dismantling them on every possible level. Amal's father was arrested and thrown in jail, like many, many other Anadha members. More than thirty thousand, in fact. Even in his absence, the regime wasn't far behind.
4: Yeah, my mom suffered a lot after my dad lost his job and was sent to jail. She and my grandmother worked so hard to cover our expenses. I'd um, I'd go to school in shabby clothes and worn-out shoes, and the kids used to laugh at me and they'd taunt me and say stuff like, Your dad's a criminal, that's why he's in jail. And I go home crying and ask my mom if my dad was a criminal. And she explained to me that he had a noble message, that he fought for it, and the price he had to pay was being in
0: prison. All through her schooling, Amal endured harassment about her father, but also about her faith. At university, she started covering her hair, even though the hijab was banned on campus.
4: Yeah, they used to ban girls from taking their exams and even expel them if they didn't take it off. So I wore mine in defiance. You get a lot of harassment, even in the street. The army or the police would stop you and would say, why are you wearing that? Take it off. There was a lot of repression of everyone, though. Even a communist would grow a beard and they would tell him to shave it off like... Why are you growing a beard? Or if someone was wearing the Palestinian keffiyeh, they would tell them to take it off and ask them, Are you a leftist? So it wasn't only a repression against the
0: Islamists, but against all the opposition. It didn't matter if you were an Islamist or a leftist or a union member who wouldn't kowtow to one of Ben Ali's family members. Anyone who stepped out of line could expect the harshest of consequences. The 80s and 90s were bleak years in Tunisia, with tens of thousands of political prisoners rotting in jail cells, and families fleeing in the middle of the night to France or Italy or the UK to avoid arrest.
4: Many people left, but we didn't. My father had this principle. He wouldn't leave his country no matter what. He'd say, we are the children of Tunisia, and we will stay in Tunisia. This is our country, and no one can make us leave. So we stayed.
0: Ben Ali used his oppression of the Islamists to his advantage on the world stage, especially after 9-11. Countries in the West who conflated organized Islamist movements and terrorism saw Ben Ali as a partner in the global war on terror. He was also willing to work with organizations like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. They liked his Western outlook and economic policies that seemed sensible, even if his human rights record was a bit suspect. They'd give Tunisia huge loans that pumped cash into the economy and held up Ben Ali as a model for the region.
2: When you think about the regime, its legitimacy was founded on a claim of economic competency. It was founded on a promise to the people of jobs, of growth, of inclusion, of opportunity. But the Tunisian people no longer felt that way.
0: It was all just a guise. Ali had been cooking the books for years. The booming growth numbers that the government reported to the World Bank and IMF were grossly inflated. The government reported that the poverty rate had been reduced to a mere 3.8%. But that was because they lowered the threshold for what counted as poverty to a level that was so low, only a small fraction of the population counted. If they had used the international standard, it would have been more like 12%. Even if the folks at the World Bank couldn't see it, the Tunisian people could.
2: They no longer saw the government as competent on creating jobs, on creating economic opportunity. They felt that they were poor. They saw the inflation. The bread they bought was getting worse in terms of its quality. And the people saw the corruption and the grasping kind of climbing nature of the Trabelsi family and they hated the situation.
0: To introduce you to the Trabelsi family, and in particular, the expertly coiffed head of the family, Layla Trabelsi. So, Layla is Ben Ali's second wife. She's 20 years his junior, and unlike Ben Ali, who grew up in a middle class home, her life began in poverty, with a huge, raucous family all crammed into one house in the Medina of Tunis. Her father sold bags of nuts to the vendors and shoppers there. But Layla wanted more. And she didn't really care how she got it.
2: She was seen as grasping, as rapacious, frankly, as uneducated. She had been a hairdresser before she met Ben Ali, and, and they would refer to her as the hairdresser in a very kind of derogatory manner. Tunisians did not like Ben Ali, but they hated Leila Trabelsi and they hated the Trabelsi family with a passion.
0: Ben Ali wanted power, but Leila Trabelsi wanted money. And she didn't just want it for herself, she wanted it for her extended family. If you're wondering where all that money from the IMF went, the answer is the Trebelses and their friends. When the IMF encouraged Ben Ali to privatize state companies throughout the 90s, he handed them off to Leela's brothers and their friends, who proceeded to run the companies into the ground while reaping incredible profits.
2: They threw out the well-respected head of the Bank de Tunisie, which was really, in many respects, a premier kind of financial institution for the country. And they put in the wife of the foreign minister, who really wasn't qualified to run the place. And they put Belhassen Trabelsi on the board. And essentially, this was a case where the Trabelsis had taken over a bank. Now they had a much greater source of funding, financing for whatever, you know pursuits they wanted to get up to.
0: Ben also shaped economic policy in ways to enrich his family beyond just privatization. In 2004, Sakur Elmatri, the guy with the tiger who invited the ambassador to dinner, he bought a luxury car dealership. It wasn't a big money-making prospect because there were tight restrictions on the number of luxury cars you could import. But a few months later, Ben Ali raised the quota on auto imports so Elmatri could sell four times the number of cars. He bought the dealership for $18 million. Just five years later, it brought in $41 million in initial partial stock offerings.
2: They would identify an opportunity. They would either set up a company or they would take over somebody else's company, often involuntarily. Then they would use regulations and threats, various legal actions to shut down anybody or anything that didn't do what they wanted or who posed any sort of threat or risk to their their profits.
0: This mafia-style sleight of hand ran top to bottom in Tunisia. It wasn't just the banks and the big multinationals. Every interaction with the government or police resulted in a bribe or a threat. And it extended beyond business, too. When Ben Ali cut social programs for Tunisians, the family set up charity funds to fill in the gaps, and through lavish fundraisers.
2: There were stories about funds that were supposedly set up to help people. These were being used as you know, slush funds for the family.
0: And if you were on the same social level as the Trabelsi clan imagined themselves to be, well, it could get ugly.
2: The Trabelsis would see a property that they wanted in Carthage. Beautiful area, beautiful homes. The owner would be informed so-and-so has decided they like your home. Here's what they're going to pay you for it. Get out. It was a story about a yacht being seized by a couple of people in the Trabelsi family, a French yacht.
0: This one was rich. Two of Leila's brothers, Ahmed and Moaz, boosted this French financier's yacht on Corsica and sailed it right into the harbor in Sidi Bou Saïd. They gave it a new paint job and pretended like they had no idea what Interpol was talking about when they demanded the yacht be returned. Basically, to quote Ariana Grande, the Trabelsi clan had a motto. I see it. I like it. I want it. I got it.
1: Everyone knew the Tribelsis built their fortune on corruption. For an outsider like Ambassador Godek, it seemed a bit gauche. But there's an alert of that kind of money and power. And when you get close to it, it can be intoxicating.
3: I used to study with the daughter of Ben Ali, the daughter of the president. I used to be close to the family of them, and I used to be friends with her.
1: This is Amin Riahi. His family were wealthy and well-connected. And although they were devout Muslims, they'd managed to keep on the right side of the regime. He went to the Carthage International School with Ben Ali's younger daughter, Halima.
3: She sure, was like, uh, wearing a luxury shoes, luxury dress, luxury bag, and then we have like two hours break. She go back to the house, and she came back with a completely different dress, and shoes, and bag, and sunglasses.
1: Amin knew Halima was rich, and that her family was powerful, but he was skeptical about it.
3: This is not even a queen lifestyle. Come on, this is more than a queen lifestyle. All the money belongs to him. All the resources belong to him. Everything was belonged to the Benali family. So he used to have like Pablo Escobar. He used to have like infinity money. He even doesn't know how much.
1: Things changed when he got a taste of that power for himself. His school class was planning a trip to Paris, something most Tunisian students didn't get to do. And all the kids needed visas to enter the country.
3: The first thing that I noticed and I felt at that period that I give it my passport in a day and I got my visa only in the afternoon. Normal people to get a visa they stayed between 1 week, 2 weeks, 3 weeks to get a French visa. When the class got
1: to the airport for their flight, they skipped past security straight to their gate without checking in. I mean, the others were elated. So this is what it was like to live inside the system. And things only got more surreal when they landed. President Sarkozy sent his secret service to pick them up and escorted them all to the Élysée Palace where he was waiting to greet them.
3: That's very powerful. Being a Tunisian student, traveling with a Tunisian group, and you go to the Elysee, and you meet the French president.
1: (laughs) They got private tours of the Louvre and Versailles, and had restaurants completely bought out for their lunches and dinners. Amin was just 15 years old at the time, and he was completely enraptured.
3: So this is where you can feel it. How a powerful regime of dictatorship has even relationship outside of the country, not only inside of the country.
1: He grew closer with Halima. She'd invite him to pool parties at the presidential palace or the home of her uncles, Bel Hassan and Ahmed Trabelsi, the same guy who stole that yacht. Amin told us what it was like.
3: It was like the Al Pacino style. That's how it was. It was like the, uh, you know, the, when the shirt is, uh, you open two or three bottom of the shirts and like you can see too much air and like smoking the cigarettes and having like the scotch and the whiskey in the other hand and like chilling in the next to the pool. But for the Trabelsi brothers, emulating the mafia was more
1: than just in clothes and cigars.
3: The one thing that I cannot forget <laughs> from. Uh, from Ahmed, he was like the spoiled guy Of the Trabelsi family Ahmed Trabelsi, he was like always with his gun And like showing off with his gun That was the craziest time in my life As a civil person having a gun with him And like showing the gun to everyone Like for us as a Tunisian society This is like completely different Because someone having a gun Either is a police, either he's a soldier But a civil guy having a gun and has the possibility to kill anyone, that was so, so scared for us.
1: Ahmed would sit by the pool, gesturing with his revolver as he drank. He'd show it off to the teenage boys, many of whom had never seen a gun in real life, and hint that they shouldn't cross him. Amin was enthralled, but terrified
3: can kill you. He can tell your family that you are dead in a car accident. He can tell your family that you killed yourself. Imagine the possibility of killing, lying, and do whatever you want with a life, with a personal life. That's a dictatorship. That's a mafia dictatorship.
0: Revolution One is produced by me, Aaron Brown, and Cyrus Rodell. Tim O'Keefe is our composer and engineer. Special thanks this episode to Claire Fry, who voiced Amal, and to Forad al Khateb for help with translations. We recorded this episode at La Fabrique in downtown Tunis. Join us next week for episode three, which takes us to a dusty mining town on the edge of the Sahara, where we follow along with two young spies on a dangerous mission in what would become the prelude to the revolution. And hey, if you liked this episode share it with someone else you think would enjoy the podcast or leave us a review. Listener recommendations are the best way for us to get new listeners. Thanks and see you next time.